Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. I'm here in Sydney in lockdown and this episode is with an online friend, suitably enough, uh, a Twitter person, person, personality, person, a person, let's let's go with person, Visagan V or known as Visa on, online and he always has really interesting and fascinating ideas and these sort of interlinked threads. We had a conversation about art and personhood and friendship and being a nerd, and I think it was just a delight, a, really a delightful conversation. I tend to prefer to meet people in person before I do uh, tea with Alice, but in this instance, I felt like I knew him well enough online to to do this, and it turned out indeed to be a lot of fun. If you are online at the moment, I have a show on the 12th, I think, or the 14th of July uh, and that's at the Nowhere Comedy Club, and tickets are available now if you look me up on at Alliterative on Twitter, uh, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E, or patreon.com slash Alice Fraser. You can buy tickets there, or if you just Google Nowhere Comedy Club, Alice Fraser Kronos, you will find it. It's the only show that I'm doing in the foreseeable future because we are in lockdown here in Sydney. As always, thank you so much to the people who support me on Patreon. It literally, particularly in times like this where I cannot leave the house to do my work, it, it lets me do what I do, and it's an incredible privilege to have people who support your work in that way. I'll stop getting sappy about it. Uh, I love talking to you. I'll talk to you again next week. You're having tea with Alice. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. Who are you and what are you drinking? What am I drinking? Um, well, I'm not drinking anything right now, but I was drinking chocolate milk earlier. <laughs> I'm Visa. Hi, everyone. Uh, I am Singaporean. I'm 30 years old, 31 soon. I used to work in marketing, but uh, these days I'm sort of like a... Most recently, I described myself as like a street preacher for online nerds. So I kind of I kind of have this, this manic, chaotic, um, busker energy. And uh, that, that is what I really want to be doing, actually. I mean, so I, I have a book. Uh, I sell books. You know, I sell consulting to clients sometimes. But all of that is just to pay the bills. And really what I want to be doing is sort of running around screaming on, a, on a, some kind of soapbox, telling people to be kinder and more crazy. So that's, that's funny. That is something that I also do. Jared McKenna said I was like a secular preacher once. Oh, so, nice. Uh, certainly with my comedy, what I try to do is, is try to make people feel more human and be more conscious of the humanity of the people around them. Uh, yes. It, you know, it's, it's always, it always feels a bit cringy to talk about comedy in, in the kinds of ways that I think about comedy. Um mm-hmm because you know if you listen to last week's episode or maybe the week before's episode with Dara O'Brien he's very mm-hmm. old school comedy it's all about the jokes yes. it's all about the that particular form of the craft and yeah. when i think about it in this sort of like academic way or in this like mm-hmm. borderline preachy spiritual way about the rhetoric right. and the structure and how you can change people and how you can open people's minds with comedy or change the way that they think about things not what they think but the way that they think uh, yes. Then it's sort of if you're talking to one of these old school comedy guys, they look at you like right. you're completely off the rails, like you're doing a completely oh, yeah. different thing. Interesting, but like I, th- I think you would agree with me that like even if they don't realize that that's what they're doing, they're still doing it in a sense, right? It's it's, it's about how you, how you choose to see it. Although, I mean, you don't. Want, I don't want to tell other people what they are doing if they don't agree. Then you know it's that's their 
I, I want to respect their perspective on how they frame what they're doing. But, mm. you know, like, like it's, all, it's about the whole art and interpretation sort of thing, right? Like, I've always thought that every creative, every artist, every intellectual, every writer, every author, every musician, like, the, every person who steps up in front of an audience of some kind, they are putting forward a point of view, right? A way of seeing. And so even if you if you are thinking about, oh, I'm just making, you know, arguments or I'm just making observations, you're still, you're still, there's this meta context in which um like the artist and the audience are involved in a kind of dialogue. And and it's just so much more profound than people realize, I feel. And I, I think yeah. you get that as well. If you're saying something like, what's the deal with toasters? What you're actually saying is the world is absurd and yes, can be yes, de- yes. deconstructed and the way that you look at things that are normal, uh, you can change the world from something that's normal to something that's full of wonder or confusion or existential despair. Uh, yes. So that I feel like this, it probably falls somewhere in between but not in the middle. I fucking hate the idea that everything is actually in the middle of two extremes. It probably mm-hmm. falls somewhere in between this maybe maybe it's a fear, but you see it with like Colbert and, and John Stewart mm-hmm. back in the day who would always say things like, oh, we're just comedians, we're just entertainers, uh, yeah, when yeah. they had such a profound effect on the culture and mm-hmm. probably knew it as well, but part of the whole construction was that they were pretending that they weren't having this impact. So the it's, idea yeah. that comedy is just nothing versus my yeah. idea that comedy is like hugely it's profound a- and impactful. <laughs> Agreed. It's it's a kind of dodge, you know. Uh, it's like a shirk. I mean, I mean, it's a it's a valid move if you want to play it. Uh, I've seen similar things play out in in video games. So it's like, um, you know, video games these days are like a multi billion dollar industry. It's it's bigger than Hollywood at this point. But like, uh, there's this sort of there's this sort of duality where people try to have half their cake and eat it too, where they are like saying that oh, we want to discuss video games because it's it's culture and, you know, it's it's uh, we have meaningful and important things to say about how the world views itself, you know, how we how we view things, you know, what can we manipulate, like, uh, you know, is, is violence, what, what role does fictional violence play? But anytime you try to criticize them or you try to analyze, I mean, you know, there's there's a fallback, which is like, oh, this is just games, guys. It's like, it's not, it's not, stop making it such a big deal. It's like, don't, don't give us, don't question how we portray our women or how we like it's just games it's just fantasy it's not, like yeah, it's uh, okay, just entertainment like, it's just entertainment yeah. it's just the way in which humans have communicated ideas for hundreds of thousands of years in the face of like <laughs> cultural disjunctions yeah yeah it's yeah. just the way that other people understand that other people are people but don't worry about it it's just entertainment <laughs> yes exactly exactly and 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 i don't want to be like a killjoy and go all the way to the other end it's like oh no fun allowed you know like we this is this is serious it's like both right it's what you're saying it's like the same for laughing at a funeral or whatever it's like profound and it's silly and it's always it's both and it and yeah i agree that it's not uh like perfectly in the middle it's like it oscillates it swings back and forth each one is in the other it's like a towers kind of thing yeah, and it also depends on who the audience is and, and the situation mm-hmm. and the context and all of these things go out in, like, huge networks of, of mm-hmm. impact. And particularly yes. now when, you know, I always think about these kind of circles of the impact of what you say, it, mm-hmm. it, particularly when it comes to these arguments about offence and particularly mm. when it comes to leaked offence. Right. I always find that so strange because we understand that there are things you say in private spaces mm. that have meaning in private spaces there's language in private spaces that is particular you could you could have a a a spouse and the way Mm -hmm. that you tell your spouse you love them is to go go fuck yourself 
Maybe yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. you, between yes. the two of you, that's your language and they know what you mean and you know what you mean. And right. if that gets leaked online, some all you know, people are like, oh, it's an abusive relationship. Yes, yes. So we sort of understand that. And yet at the same time, we're mm-hmm. perfectly happy to pillory people for leaked private emails or leaked. Uh, yeah, it's so unfortunate. I, I was just talking to my wife about this, uh, about the, 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 the dynamic is like, so the, the dynamic that most people are familiar with would be like, you know, only I can like insult my sibling because we have that shared context and we understand. But like when a stranger agrees with me, so if I say, oh, my, you know, so it's like a, an, another example is like a, with regional food and stuff. So I'm Singaporean mm-hmm. and there's this funny tweet from a Malaysia. So Malaysia is like our North neighbor. And there's this funny tweet from a Malaysian who's like, the Malaysian jokes that Singaporeans' food have no taste, like it's tasteless food. And it, because we have that shared context, we're both Southeast Asian, we both have the same similar background. And so like part of how Singaporeans and Malaysians kind of josh with each other is we make fun of each other's food. But then when like, you know, like a, a, someone from the UK is like, oh yeah, you know, Southeast Asian food sucks, the Malay- Singapore, like they agree with the Malaysian, the Malaysian gets upset. Because like, who are you to agree with me about my, like, this is my sibling rivalry, right? And it's not your business. You, you haven't experienced the context. And it plays out at all layers, right? Like, like r- rivalries between cities, between nations even, potentially. Well, and it's all, it, I mean, it, it, it is all about power, power dynamics and, and power structures. Yes. Often the thing that I, I find really sort of frustrating about language policing because although I sort of agree with the principle of it, I don't agree with the execution yeah. of it, which is that yes. the thing that is bad about an insult is not mm-hmm. the sound of the word. Yes. It's the fact that it's drawing attention to a historical mm-hmm. imbalance yeah. and you're reminding that this person, you're sort of putting them in their quote-unquote place. You're, yeah. you're reminding this person that they are below you by using this reference point, you know, right. according to this hierarchy that you both understand. Yes. So that's why, you know, if you insult somebody in a foreign language that they don't understand, it's not an insult. Yeah. yeah. They don't get offended in the same way, even if they understand objectively that you're right. insulting them, they don't feel the same impact right. of it. And so mm-hmm. I, I think about that. A lot. Well, I was having this discussion. My brother works at uh, Queensland University and, and he mm-hmm. wanted me to talk to some of his colleagues who are talking about artificial intelligence he works in ethics in artificial intelligence is his area which is fascinating but they want to figure out a way to get ai to pull down instances of punching down jokes on Hmm. social media Hmm. which (laughs) uh, they want to i I went and had a chat with them about it as you know sort of as, as a comedian um, right. And I think I maybe presented it, um, presented them with some complications that they weren't expecting yeah. Um, yeah. from me as a kind of a you know, minority group within this industry. Right. That, right. that it just, I just don't know how you would, how you would do it. I just don't know how you would yeah. even begin to do that. What counts as punching down? Yeah. How do you quantify harm? You know, mm-hmm. is it how many times it's shared? Is it by whom it is shared? Because of course. Mm-hmm these things just move between different people and they can be shared between, you know, brother and sister and, and be not insulting, or they could be shared between a boss and a, and an employee mm. and be incredibly insult. Like you just, I, I yeah. just blew my mind that. And, and I mean, yeah. I guess congratulations to them for the ambition <laughs> yeah. of it. Uh, right. Less congratulations about the fact that it sort of feels a little fascisty, but it does. It does. Yeah. Just yeah. the very idea of it is so mind blowing to me. 
yeah, because it's so everything's always in flux, right? It's always changing in circumstance and and context. And like you know, anytime you try to introduce anything that is meant to label something a certain way, like people can immediately misuse the label in in some negative way. So like you know, let's say you introduce like a, a like a Facebook reaction that says, uh, "I'm sorry for you," right? It sounds like oh, it's sweet. You get and then people will let's say somebody posts something positive like oh you know I, i'm i'm i have a kid now i'm pregnant and then someone reacts i'm sorry for you like oh shit like that was you did not conceive that that's the way that people can use it like people will immediately try to find how to break any given label system thing absolutely the the irony and sarcasm and and distance and again context and rhythm and pace and all of this stuff is right. is so special right. it's impossible one of the things yeah. that I, i'm talking about in my show chronos at the moment is the ways in which this kind of algorithmic thinking and quantified life thinking mm. fails that that yes. it, so there's one thing um recently an ai thing where they read people's expressions during job interviews and they oh. rate they categorize those expressions according to seven different emotions uh, yeah <laughs> and then they, yeah. they they try to rank the uh, interviewees by what previous successful interviewees were doing emotionally speaking during the interview mm-hmm. and that's their way of of one of their ways of assessing candidates for the job which is like mm-hmm. okay okay yeah. first of all who's to say that you want people who are like the people you already have mm-hmm. like yeah. w- <laughs> this is the whole argument about women in the workforce is that they bring something new and different and 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 that that's a special thing and that that actually the things that you've been using as as ideas of what a successful person looks like could be completely wrong um, yeah. or completely incomplete and then the second thing is that these seven emotions that you categorize people into were just mm-hmm. categories made up by a, a, an anthropologist in the 60s who had this <laughs> idea that there were emotions yeah. that were universal and that they right. could be categorized and he just took a photos around to like Polynesian Islanders and it was like, does that look like a sad person to you? Like it's completely unscientific. There's this profoundly sort of computerized process. Yeah. Yeah. And everything is like that. Every algorithm is like that. Every quantifiable thing is like that. Every way that you try to put a metric on life is going to miss 99.9% of everything. Right. And probably what's what might be relevant you know yeah 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 and it's so it's the the wild thing for me is that people can know it's happening and this we are still susceptible to it so like one of the things is you know like appealing oh i love it i love it this is why i argue with it because i fucking love it yeah it's like uh let's take like follower count or subscriber count on on social media right um, again, not every follow is the same. Not everybody's attention is equal. And like, you know, as a, as a creative, like almost always you would prefer to have, you know, an engaged audience of a few dozen people or a few hundred people who really appreciate and understand your work and who really kind of are in dialogue with it. But then, you know, there are things you can do to try and get a large follower count. But it's by it's by optimizing your work in a way that, makes it easy for, makes it accessible to people in a very, in a kind of superficial way. And then when you do that, so like what happens on YouTube, for example, is that 
again, like in the eyes of a passerby, every subscriber is the same. But like the most, the easiest subscribers to get on YouTube are like children, like literal children who are using <laughs> their parents' iPads. And so I, I was watching. There's this there's this interesting analysis video I saw of. Uh, a, a person analyzing like the body language of these massive YouTube accounts for like millions of subscribers. And there's this, and it's kind of creepy when you get into it because there's like this, this famous family and it's like a husband and wife and kids. And they are kind of doing this, this very grandiose show. And they're like, ask the, 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 the viewer to high five them on camera. And like, and you're watching it, you're like, I wouldn't do that. And you're like, oh, it's for kids. They don't explicitly say it's for kids, but like their entire empire on YouTube is built on optimizing for, for kids. And, and, you know, their content isn't exactly explicitly stated as, oh, this is for kids, but it's, you know, and then they get ad revenue and they get money and then they, their instincts get become what other people think is like the norm or is correct and it's just ah people don't think about these things it's crazy no they don't and and it's it's really difficult to figure out how to negotiate your way through it because it is so like so pernicious right um now that we're almost halfway through i will ask you the second question that i ask which is what have you been wrestling with recently Oof! what have i been wrestling with um I think this will be related to what we, what got you, what invited me, what, what got you to invite me to the podcast, which is just kind of, um, so the concept is status regulation, but the, the specific thing that I'm re- wrestling with is kind of like um, how bold to be or how ambitious to be uh, publicly with one's utterances. And actually it, it also ties back to what you were saying earlier about like private spaces versus public spaces. Like there's a small handful of people who, I have trusted enough to kind of be very brazenly, openly um, ambitious with, like, be, because they we they know me well enough and they trust me well enough and we have enough shared experience that they know my heart, they know my intentions, and I can kind of use shorthand to talk about these things. And I I have been slow playing everything that I do, basically. Like, you know, I, I downplay the what I perceive the potential impact to be. I downplay kind of uh, what I think is possible. Part of it is part of it is like intellectual humility, sure. But there's also a point where you know, um, like, how do you know when humility is is kind of something that you're doing to make a social space kind of um, more comfortable for people versus how, what are you kind of doing it in a false way to? I don't know if I, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with this I, I haven't figured out like an elegant way to articulate it but it's like I mean that is what I, this podcast is for specifically for difficult ideas and, yeah, and things yeah. that are half thought through and half baked and half considered and this is a fascinating idea it's a fascinating right. idea and it's one that I sort of am struck by coming back to Australia from the UK whether mm. I have a, a privilege as a foreigner there or whether Australia is more um uh, it's more sexist or whether the way that I speak in Australia has a significance that it doesn't have in the UK. There's all these possibilities. But the reality oh. is when I am on stage in Australia, I have to, I must, mm-hmm. in order to be funny, take myself down a few notches in the way that ah, I present. Yes. So even if I'm being declamatory, I have to do it more, more um, stutteringly or more doubtfully, or I have to touch my hair like a mad professor. Like I do this <laughs> body language of uncertainty in Australia. And I question right. myself and my, it, it is 
and you need to do it. You you can feel it in the air. You can feel it in the audience. Right. Part of right. a huge part of comedy is just audience right. management. It's just management, the vibe yeah. that you're getting off the audience. A little bit more, a little bit yeah. less, a little bit more intense, a little less intense, a bit more self-deprecating. Right. The right. reality is that in Australia, I must be more mm-hmm. self-deprecating in order to be right. as funny. Right, as right. I am in the UK. Yes. So I, I have, a, I have, I have, a, well, I have so many things to share with you. I have this, this essay idea. I call it the slingshot theory. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, when so this this is a bit geeky, but like um, with with like space physics, like when you want to go to a distant planet, like one of the there's this thing called a gravity assist where you go around a different planetary body and you use the gravity of that planet to kind of slingshot you faster towards oh, yeah. another thing. I watched Star Trek. I know these things. Excellent. Yeah. And or even just a, a regular slingshot, right? Like if you want to yeah. throw something that way, it goes at a certain trajectory. But if you pull it back with a sling, with that, that's so you get to, by going in a different direction, you get to go further in that forward direction. And similarly, I, f- I feel like there's something about this with, um, so the, the concepts to think about are like gravity and bodies and like, the three bodies with gravity. Anyway, um, I realized that, uh, okay, I, I kind of got too abstract there, but like, okay, so if I'm I wanted following to, you. Right, if I wanted to have, so this is going to seem like a, like a separate thing, but it's related, I'll connect it later. If I wanted to organize, so ignoring COVID, so if I just, if there was no pandemic, if I wanted to get a hundred people in a room to hang out with me, like to, to show up for a talk, I'm born and raised in Singapore. I've been here all my life. I have been very active in I, I, in my late teens and early 20s. I was very active in Singaporean politics and like, um, you know, social media, like just very involved. But if I wanted to get 100 people to show up for me in a room, I would be have an easier time doing it in New York, in San Francisco or London than I would in Singapore. Because those people, I mean, it's, 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 so, it's so difficult to, to talk about this without sounding ungrateful in some way or but like those people have less preconceptions about me and my perceived relative status in life they they are able to perceive me you know for my ideas without um kind of um putting me in my what school did he come from you know what putting you in your place yeah here's a guy from across halfway across the planet and he has some interesting perspective like then out and you know what's crazy this happened to jesus <laughs> like there's this there's a verse in the bible that's like um he he ends up saying he, he goes around on like his speaking tour right he's so again he's a prophet he's walking around the city to city spreading the good word right and when he went back to his hometown of nazareth he couldn't win the audience over. They were like, isn't that the carpenter's son? Isn't that, like, we know this guy. He's not so great. He's just the local guy, right? Mm. And it's the same thing plays out for, like, um, chefs who try to, prom- like, uh, I found it, especially in colonial countries, it's, like, extra intense. Like, um, like Indian chefs in India, Brazilian chefs in Brazil, when they try to, to elevate their local cuisine, their local population doesn't, have it but what what happens is they go to new york they go to london they go to some other tokyo some other cultural center somewhere else in the world and they succeed there and then when they come back now everyone's interested because they've been validated by an external thing and that's like ah it's agonizing because why did i have to go somewhere else to be appreciated before you appreciate me you know it's that kind of thing and you don't want to be like condescending about it you don't want to be you, you know you want to approach it with love but there is something to be kind of it's, it's silly it's it's annoying uh, you get it 
Well, you also have this kind of particular, it's not particular to post-colonial places, but uh, there is this tall poppy syndrome thing that yes. happens among locals that is evaporates overseas, I yes. think. That, yeah. you know, you go to America and you think, wow, these people are so boastful, you know, that right. they just tell you what they're good at yeah, rather than sort of subtly trying to hint at what they're good at by saying what they're bad at. Right. Um, and that's all, you know, got to do with language and culture and and, and all of, of that as well. But certainly this, this localism, the, the kind of maybe it's a scarcity mentality. I don't know what it is, but it's certainly yeah. a, a thing that happens in Australia particularly is people mm-hmm. will go overseas and then they can be seen as successful when they come back because they've got this stamp of approval. Right. As though it's, Australians yeah, it's... don't trust their own taste. Yes, yes, yes. That happens so much. People, ah, it's 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 immensely the case in Singapore as well, and in Malaysia and Indonesia, like just everywhere in this region. And uh, yeah, pe- like learning to trust your own taste when you do it, and you are like, and the thing is, taste is very costly to develop. Like it, like um, psychologically in the early days, like imagine being Shakespeare's English teacher. Right? Like what an annoying kid that, you know, he was like making up his own words. Like, and you're like that's not a word. Like it will be when I'm done with it, you know, but like, yeah, it's um, to cultivate your own taste in the early stages. You don't, you don't know what your taste is. You're trying to figure it out. You're screwing around. You're deviating from the norm and it doesn't look good. And your first hundred paintings or, or sketches or whatever look terrible and to be to encourage someone who's doing that it's it's it doesn't seem to come naturally to most people i know at least and it's it's and then when people continue to cultivate their taste and they continue to and eventually when they get good at it which takes decades like two decades rough, roughly then they become then we call them geniuses and we we kind of separate them from everyone else as though they are like magically imbued with some special gifts that everyone else doesn't have but like it's a process and and we interrupt this process for our own convenience because it there's a lot to be said about this because it's like sometimes people get upset at other people trying to do things because it just it implies that oh you mean you can just do things you mean i have been living my life kind of not doing things that i want to do for no reason like it's I, it's, it's regular. i remember having a conversation with someone after i quit the law to do comedy and mm. of course you know pursuing art is you have to have either the luxury of a personality that is willing and able to go against the grain that you're mm-hmm. I, you can either f- uh, financially afford or emotionally afford to be an outlier yes and and that's why you often see people who are a little bit spectrumy doing these outlier things because they yes. can overcome yeah. that kind of whatever that that um oppressive force of people's opinion is they can either they can go around that with being neuroatypical or you can have enough money to do it or whatever it happens to be um yeah but it is this uh, what was i saying um you've had you've had a conversation with someone about similar oh yes so i quit i quit the law to do comedy and i'd been saving money since the day i started doing law um so i knew i had this buffer and I just continued to live like I was a poor student while I was a lawyer. So that was my Excellent. way of going, making myself this buffer. And she said, oh, I, I want to do that too. I want to do that Bye. too. I want to quit the law. I said, well, what do you want to do? And she said, I just have to figure out what I want to do. So hmm. she liked the idea of pursuing her right. interests, right. but she was not confident enough to 
have an interest yeah in any, in any which was yeah. it was just such a a strange thing because of course she if you if anyone thinks about it they're interested in something yes you know you you've mm-hmm. there's nothing i mean that's taking us back to the algorithmic thing there's nothing that is right. actually mathematically correct to be thinking yes. about or putting your attention on it yes. you know science follows people's interests and that follows their gut right. instinct or computer yes. science or whatever you know the app that you build is not there because it yes. needs to be there it's there because someone's yes. interested in it but it was just such a striking thing this girl was like oh, oh i want to pursue my interest i just have to figure out what yeah. it is right yeah i've i've yeah i get i get people like like that in my dms fairly often and i think what i've noticed is that there is a strain of like having a fantasy as a kind of escapist notion like it's i mean like it's you don't want to like uh, there's a phrase in the book the courage to be disliked where he's with the so it's framed as a dialogue and there's like a teacher kind of character and a student kind of character and the teacher says something like you know like if you want to be a novelist you would be writing and like you know you would be writing in your spare time you would be writing in your on on the commutes on the train or you'd be writing snatches of, of stuff of material even though you don't have like time to assemble everything you have the pieces so that when an opportunity comes for you to do it you can do it but like most people who talk about wanting to write a novel if they haven't written an outline if they haven't written their sketches like they're just in love with the idea of someday being a novelist rather than because well, actually they, they being want a novelist, to be a public figure who is respected for their words and ideas right. Right. which is what they think a novelist is but actually most right. novelists i know are <laughs> deeply weird yeah. shy reclusive people who yeah. obsessively yeah. write stories and if you bring them out to a public event they'll stand in this, the corner just watching people like a like yeah. a scared yeah. deer yeah. Yeah. watching yeah. predators and yeah. that's what most novelists are like that's yeah. what it is to be a novelist is to be right. outside of society yeah yeah and not it's such an odd yeah right yes it's, it's it's almost like you have no choice like i like i'm right i'm working on my second book now it's not a novel but I, i wrote a draft of a novel once and i'm sitting on it but anyway um the book that i'm currently working on is such an ordeal and i know it's not going to make me a lot of money i know it's not gonna it's like there's no rational reason why i'm writing this other than i am it's, so some part of me inside me just has to do it like it just it has to come so it's like you know it's it when 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 you do the thing that you're supposed to do that you know inside you you're supposed to do it's like you can't it's not something that you figure out someday right like it's it's inside you that wants to come out this is my experience like when i come when when people talk to me about this and at this point i have like dozens and dozens of transcripts of chats with people asking me like i tend to ask them so like what what are you already what is the thing that you know when when you're distracted from work what's the thing that you can't help but do like that's usually the sign of the thing that you should be doing but yeah it's crazy that people don't have clarity on this and they kind of go about their lives not it's, knowing it's so easy now and not to sound like a curmudgeonly old man but it is so easy <laughs> now to disconnect from your own desire from your own yes. mind yes. that you yeah. can be guided by an algorithm rather than by your own interests as to what mm-hmm. you pursue what you absorb what comes into your brain right. and that you never need to be alone with your thoughts right i think there are you know i used to make a joke uh that there are people who are probably in relationships that are completely unsustainable except that they share a taste in netflix <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> yeah, and and I mean, so probably you know, so that's funny, and it's the 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 truth is probably that they are also shared by their fear of being alone, right? Like, so they 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 have a thing, and they don't wanna interrogate and investigate and figure stuff out because it's uncomfortable to to ask yourself and ask each other what do you really want and then you know they they end up resenting each other but they are also allies in a sense like they're both enabling each other and they resent each other for it but they depend on each other for it. it's a it's an unhealthy codependency basically and i mean it might it might be like not that it might doesn't necessarily need to be full out like abusive and destructive and like you know love the way you lie kind of dramatic but still in like small ways we we enable each other and it's it can be a profound thing to decide that you're not going to enable your own bullshit and then decide that you're not going to enable other people's bullshit and like you will lose friends in that process but it's a it's you get it it's just so much yeah yeah it's it is it is a thing i think one of the things uh, one of the i don't know insights that i had recently about people was you know they say that your friends are the ones who you can complain to or that you can tell, you can share hard times with. Right. And and that the people who stick around when things are really rough, those are your real friends. And that is a little bit true and also like a little true. bit not yeah. true. Yeah. So you, yeah. you when, when, when my mom died, there were people who were around who were my real friends and, and they were there and they were really there. And there were some people who were just emotional vampires who mm. liked the feeling Oof. of being part of something big or something dramatic yeah, or something profound yeah. and, and they were there and they wanted to have a moment with you. They wanted it to be their moment of them being understanding or something really weird. And then there were people who couldn't handle it because they had shit going on in their own lives and they right. are not they are not not my friends because of that. They could, right, you know, right. they couldn't do it. They they yeah. just couldn't, whether it was because they were suffering in their own families or because they had other responsibilities or because they were in a different country or because they just didn't know what to say right. all of those things are possible and i was thinking actually the people who are my real friends are the people who i can tell good news to mm. who i can tell yes. things that yes. i am oh i got this great thing like I, oh right. i just somebody's yeah. just called me from a super famous thing and they want me to do a thing for them and like yes. i can say that to them without yeah. the fear that they will be intimidated or diminished right. or right. Um, or skeptical or yeah. resentful, those are actually your real friends. Yes. How people yeah. deal with tragedy is sort of almost got nothing to do with anything. It's whether they have right. that equipment or, or space in their life or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and and I really, it just was a really kind of striking moment to me to just go, oh, yeah, there's very few people in my life who I could tell good news to mm-hmm. without fear. And I think that brings right. us back to what you were saying out, out of the gate, that there are people, there are very few people who you can share your ambition with. Yeah, yeah. It's, so those are people who respect your autonomy and your growth, right? And like, um, again, growth involves change. And a lot of people don't like it when other people change. Because again, it makes them uncomfortable because it, it implicitly suggests that they could change too, but they're not changing. And then they have all they've all these assumptions about what change means, what your value is as a person, you know, uh, you know, a, a thing that I found helpful recently is to try to think of people not as individuals, but as like um, collectives of 
each person is a kingdom, right? Each person is a, is a nation of many, many different emotions and drives and instincts. And misery loves company, right? So people, the, the miserable part of, of your city, your, your nation will ally with the miserable part of someone else. And then there's this entire network of misery that, 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 establishes right and then it's like a big club and it this it if you examine the behavior in this way it makes it makes some things that normally don't make sense make sense because it's like the the misery network is self-protecting it takes care of itself it reinforces itself it invites more people to commiserate and if anybody suggests otherwise they will be kind of shunned like and then similarly there's like the other networks of of um, ambition and growth networks or whatever and there's all kinds of like people, you know, we're always teaching other people how we want to be treated in a sense. And again, like you can use that statement in a, in a bad context. Like, I'm, like you can think of it as blaming people for how things are when there's all these external factors involved as well. But at the same time, it's like um, once you've learned to kind of, uh, so the, the path that I'm on, I feel is like I'm learning to take more responsibility for myself and for my feelings and my and everything. And as I talk to more people, I've noticed that some people are much less um, integrated than others. And by integration, I mean, again, so this is, these are concepts that I'm kind of trying to understand, so I'm not there yet. But it's like um, one of the phrases I used with my wife was like, it's like some people, a lot of people are like psychologically or spiritually sort of, um, again, I, I, well, the word that comes to me is sort of homeless. But again, I don't want to imply anything negative about, homeless people it's just like there's this sense of like um you know they just sort of not um you could say that they're not there but even that's not quite the i, I haven't found the right frame it's for this, super but- tricky to talk about this thing because of these kind of things because a lot of the language that we have yeah, for exactly, it yeah. tends to be sort of spiritualist or or loaded with moralizing things that you say oh they're not grounded or you know something like that there's a whole lot of kind of baggage that comes with I find this also when I'm talking about the connection with the audience and the ways in which Mm -hmm. you read the emotions of the audience the language that's there is just like you know the energy of the audience which sounds numinous but when you're on stage it is a it's a wall it's it's water it's something that you can put your hands in it's so concrete that to talk about it in this language that we have that sort of dissipates it into the conceptual seems like an injustice um so yeah it's a yeah i I, there's this delicate balance that i i find with between like trying to take responsibility for yourself and for your emotional emotional reactions to things and then also trying to understand like I, right. I'm, I'm trying really hard not to blame individuals for yes. manifesting systemic problems that are exactly, part of the yes. wider community or manifesting things that are systemic to their internal system that are just reactions right. from long ago. Yeah. This isn't about me. This is about your parents. Or this isn't right. about me. This is about your class. And to right. try and figure out a way to walk between those two literally yeah. opposite things. Yeah. I, I am responsible for myself, but they are not responsible for themselves without that seeming like, I'm better than you. Patronizing right? <laughs> or so, yeah. like look at me. I'm so integrated, and you're not. Yeah. Yeah, it's really it's a it's a really tricky way. Right. I guess I guess how one whenever I feel a bit lost and and confused about these things, I think what helps is to talk about specific stories. And mm. so the story that's coming to me right now is so there was this guy, and I, and I get this quite often. Like I mean, not like super often, but like once a month or so, fairly like 
recurringly enough that it's a pattern that I noticed where mm-hmm. a guy will DM me something and something very intimate and and em- kind of soft and emotional and private. Like he will tell me about, oh, you know, I I I used to do this and I see you tweeting about these things and I want to do that. I want to be more, you know, kind of creative and stuff. And then the, this same guy will reply to something in public and be disparaging. And I'm like, hmm, like what's going on here? And so once this happened once where the guy sent me like, oh, you know, how do I make more friends? You seem to be good at this. And I'm like, I, I, I wrote like this nice thoughtful response. Like, oh, you should start by doing this. Have you considered that? And then he didn't reply. And then he replied to one of my tweets like a week or two weeks later with something like I said something and then he replied like very caustic and very, you know, it's almost, um, there is this kind of male bravado I've noticed a few times. Like it, I was just, now I'm reminded of you talking about the guys who are hormonal outside. <laughs> the, 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 <laughs> yeah, like they, they, they are enacting some kind of ritual that they don't even seem to be mindful of why they're doing it. It's just, it's what is done. Like when you see a guy do this, you respond in that way and you don't even think about it. And when he did that, my response was, oh, this guy once DM'd me something. So I went into my DMs with him and I reacted with a hard react to his question. So it's like, I didn't say anything else. I just reacted with a hard react to this question. And then he blocked me. And that's, <gasps> that's fascinating to me. Because that is I think, amazing. Right? Wow. Like, can, can you get a sense of what happened there? Like, I, I think what happened is he shared an intimate side of himself with me. And then he uh-huh. forgot about it. And then he was being kind of like this bluster, angry guy vibe separately. And when I hearted his original intimate moment, it brought him face to face with himself and like the two different parts of himself. And he was not ready to deal with that. And he was not comfortable being seen in that way. That I, he, he assumed that I would not have remembered or that you know I wouldn't remember like that. He was counting on, on, on like and semi-pseudo-anonymity. And so like showing him that I saw who he was made him uncomfortable and he had to block me to not deal with that. It was, and, yeah, it was accountability. Right. And like, you know, I don't want to be mean to him. Like it's, no? this is the thing. I mean, everybody struggles with some kind of version of, this is just an incredibly like, wow, it's so, it's so stuck. There's such a, such a fantastic kind of um, A and B comparison. But I think a lot of people have some version of this. It's like, you want to be, tough but you also want to be vulnerable and you want to you know what is privacy to some degree right so you want to control you want to have some sense of who gets to hear what part of you who gets to see what side of you and some people are very thoughtful about that some people not so much and i think people who haven't been thoughtful about these things they can get whiplash when they encounter something like that and yeah yeah, it's just and encountering this in other people has you know it makes me feel sorry a little bit it makes me it it does it does um i do find that understanding this about people has made me love people more in a way it's just ah you poor people you're struggling with so much like you you just need you kind of need to integrate your feelings and and see yourself for who you are like it must be so stressful to live like that like to have a part of you that's hidden and and secret and a part of you that's like your public face and it's just well to be so subject to your own emotions to be so kind of reactive like a like a cnmony every time you get poked you have to like react Mm. in a, a particular way i have one story that's like a really positive story and it's the only positive story that i have uh about anonymous interaction so when i started uh on the bugle about four years ago um which was really a kind of a big opening up of my career in terms of Mm -hmm. in the UK and in the US. Um, And it was ridiculous. My first episode on, I'd been a fan of The Bugle since 
2009-2010 my first nice. episode on the reactions were phenomenal like my Oof. my brother was like are you paying people it was just so positive <laughs> it was so like it was just Excellent. a ridiculously positive experience for me and I, I went on the Facebook page. I, I very rarely look up my own stuff, but I was just like, this is incredible. This I'm so happy. And one person um, said, I don't really get the big deal about Alice Fraser. She, I mean, she's right. fine, but I just don't get it. And I just liked yeah. his I liked his Facebook <laughs> comment because I was like, oh, yeah, good, good. Yeah. Like this, it yeah. was actually a moment of like, oh, this is real at least. It makes right. me yeah, feel yeah, like yeah. I'm not having some sort of strange hallucination where things have worked out for me all right. Um, right. And then he messaged me four hours later and was like, hey, I just looked up a bunch of your stuff online and actually you're really good. <laughs> and I was like, right. when has that ever happened in the right. whole history of right. like, when has that yeah. ever happened online? And so like that, mm -hmm. that is my one proof that good things can happen online. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, I have very elaborate, you know, I'm obsessed with understanding these things because I consider myself like a child of the internet in a sense. Like I grew up on forums and, and even now, like so much of my life is on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's just trying to understand how people um, manage their utterances. It's actually pretty wild if you think about it. Like historically, most the, the ability to publish information in the public domain was very, very restricted to like aristocrats or, or you know, well, like now everyone can publish their comments and every, everywhere. And uh, most people don't think very much about it. I have, I have, so this is a thing I was discussing with uh, a friend the other day about Donald Trump being banned from Facebook and Twitter. And he's very mm -hmm. much of the opinion that this is a wrong thing that has had mm. coincidentally good effects, but that morally mm. speaking, freedom of speech and access to these public platforms is something that should be allowed. Um, Interesting. That they are no longer private companies, that they right. are essentially yeah. the, the freeway. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I thought... The thing about free speech, the principle of free speech, which we hold so sort of sacred and dear in the West, is right. that it's predicated on the on the forum, the literal forum, right. Right. where every like everyone, quote unquote everyone, could stand on a platform and speak to everyone. Right. That you had you had an equal audience and an equal access, and it depended on the strength of your argument and maybe on the strength of your performance as mm -hmm. to whether you were persuasive or not. Mm. But the reality is that doesn't exist anymore. When the mm. moment you introduce algorithms, you no longer mm. have freedom of speech. You no longer mm. have a, an open forum. You have, you know, silos of information. You have a you know, little middle miniature propaganda states. You have mm. no free flow of information and no free exchange of ideas, no ideas meeting each other on an equal plane anymore. It's mm. a completely different proposition. So to kind of refer to the old principles as a way of managing the new world. Mm, that's true. Is incorrect. Yeah. Yeah. It's like um, the, I have a friend who's an economist who's like, she's always upset when anybody tries to speak about national budgets in terms of like using metaphors to household budgets because it's like money doesn't even mean the same thing at that scale when you can print it right like it's a i mean i, I don't understand everything that she's saying but she i i see her anger it's valid it's like you can't use um, you know like a, a metaphor for a small thing for for a large thing it's a completely different beast just because it has the same word to describe it it doesn't mean it's the same thing at all 
yeah yeah the, the physics is totally different which is uh, it's pretty well so i mean so what, what's your sense on uh banning trump i i mean my sense on banning trump i don't have a broader sense of the principle of it yet because i think we're still in the wild west when it comes to the internet yeah. and these rules and norms are emerging and the the physics is as yet improperly understood right um, at, on a personal level so i don't yeah. want to have an opinion on it yet I don't have enough mm-hmm. information about it. But on a personal level, as somebody who <laughs> writes satirical news comedy as my mm-hmm. uh, primary form of income, right. I'm so glad. I'm so <laughs> glad I don't have to write any more jokes about stupid things he said on Twitter. I am yeah. so glad that yeah. he no longer yeah. can control the yeah. news landscape by throwing in right. a hand grenade of some just right. absolutely inane bullshit that everybody right. knows is inane bullshit and yet feels compelled to react to like yeah. it was so depressing and de- demoralizing to watch That's true. the left react predictably every fucking time just leave one on the table you know like <laughs> yeah you know just and then the right react in this way and then it was so yeah. It was so predictable that it was disheartening right. to me. And yeah, so yeah, on that yeah, level, yeah. I'm very glad. Yeah. I mean, I would occasionally, I would be like halfway across the planet. I would be going, I'll be in a, like a taxi going to my parents' place or something. And like, I would hear the Singaporean newscaster saying, President Donald Trump tweeted today. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, why, why am I? What, what, you know, I was like almost mad at Americans for subjecting the rest of us to seeing these headlines and these quotes and it's like a you know again not to make like a, a principled argument about the philosophy of it or whatever but it's just ah why why this why how did it come to this it's seriously i'm glad it's I'm, i am glad it's over but like you know there's the implications of which will be debated and argued for a long time to come but yeah it's i do not miss 2016 2017 <laughs> That's yeah, it's the, an American cultural imperialism and the impact oh, of, of that on all of us and that what we feel we should be paying attention to rather than the things that are actually impactful in our yeah, lives. Like, like somehow a Singaporean and an Australian talking about comedy, if, if, even, you know, it's like I'm almost mad at both of us for having gone there, but it had to happen, <laughs> right? Like, it did. Americans show up even in, in our private Zooms or whatever. It's just, you know what I mean? It's just, uh, it's wild. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we should start wrapping up um, sure. now, but where should, where should people seek you out? Where can they find you online? Where can they buy your book? All of that stuff. Yeah. So the two best places to find me are on Twitter and YouTube. And so you just look up my username, Visagan V, V-I-S-A-K-A-N-V. I just call me Visa, but like, uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter and on YouTube. Or if you just Google me, you'll find my website. And so my whole thing is that like all my stuff is this interconnected web. So anywhere you find me, you'll end up kind of getting dragged everywhere else if you want to. So and, in terms yeah. of you saying why I brought you on this uh, podcast, mm-hmm. it is your interconnected right. web. Uh, because oh. the way that I the way that I write shows, mm-hmm. um, I think of as like this four-dimensional I love it. model you have the the one line that is the narrative you know the structure right. of a narrative going yeah. up and down yeah. and then you have a kind of a forward momentum thing that is how close you are to the audience intimacy or I whether you're it. sort of talking about society close or, or back 
and then you yes. have kind of intensity of delivery and and right. uh, the the performance side of things in which you can raise or lower the whole tone and the ways in which those things like balance out against each other in a show I conceptualize as this kind of interconnected web and you pull one part and the other kind of stuff moves around in these um math <laughs> mathematical but unpredictable I get it. I get ways it. I get it I love and it so, you're like a you're like a chaos theorist who is doing comedy as a research <laughs> kind of uh, right. I mean, I, I kind of think of myself similarly. You know, it's like um, it's like you like like you want to understand how the wind currents work, and so you light a fire to see how the smoke goes, and then you yeah. might modify it accordingly to get your desired results. So, but it is it's fascinating, right? People and just different different scales of people reacting to different things, and it's just amazing. Yeah, and the great thing about comedy is that you you if you if your question is how do people work and how can I make them work in some ways and other ways, mm-hmm. or how, how can I affect that working? Comedy is a very satisfying way to do it because you can tell in the moment whether the idea connected or not because they either right. laugh or they don't, right. and that is a very addictive part of the process. Is going right. ah, and then they go ah, <laughs> and then you go okay. Now right, I know I've right, had this right. new piece of information about about right. humankind. Right. Um, I, I know what we should like close close with. So we, we yep. almost opened by talking about like preaching and stuff, right? And so I, I have a riff about so about my personal private kind of concept of comedy, which is which is a bit different than like um you know comedy as practice, like stand-up and all that, but like this this perspective this kind of cosmic perspective on on comedy, which is a bit it's like my private kind of it's almost religious or it you know is this idea Alan Watts was a, was a, like a philosopher comedian kind of guy and lecturer spiritual guru kind of guy but he, he described himself as an entertainer and I really like that and he said um you know like religion is the trans is about transmuting anxiety into laughter and like anxiety it's, it's both vibrations right like anxious is like this inward negative vibrations and laughter is like you're, you're letting it go and letting it free and i have a twitter thread about this where it's like i sometimes almost feel disappointed in some comedians where, where, where when a comedian gets offended or gets upset about other people getting offended or upset i feel like like they betrayed me a little bit. Like, you know, it's like, I, I thought you were a comedian, but it turns out that you were just pretend, you're just playing the role of a comedian because when the opportunity arises to make more comedy, like, and when I say comedy, I don't mean, you know, just making fun of things for laughs, but like seeing the humor in a thing. And there's profound humor in like, Every, like even in horrible things, right? But like you have to have a certain appreciation for humanity and and for for what is like kind of humorous about the the context. Uh, the story I love to tell is that so my my dad is like this very serious guy. It's very solemn, kind of boring, kind of scared. When I was a kid, when I was a kid, he was very scary. Now he's less scary, and he had a heart attack once, and he's he's fine now. But like uh, when he had a heart attack, he thought he was gonna die. We thought he was gonna die. It just seemed like dramatic and scary and bad and we visited him in the hotel the next in the hospital the next day and he was saying that he couldn't sleep the night before because one of the guys in the wards that he was in there's like maybe six guys in in like the bed it's like a big room room with multiple beds and he said one guy kept farting all night and he couldn't sleep <laughs> and i'm like you know you you're, but you might be dead tomorrow <laughs> and your, your last <laughs> memory is some guy just farting all the time which is funny and then just as he finished telling us about that that guy farted and it's like the timing was so 
<laughs> on the beat we were laughing for like 10 minutes and it's like it's just so funny and part of it is that that guy doesn't know he's the punchline right yeah yeah and he's just he's just living his he has like maybe his digestive issues i don't know but like yeah he kept my and and we were laughing it's so probably hard a really sad story but <laughs> in that context it's like the most i ever laughed with my dad in my life it's like the it's like my favorite memory of my dad was after he had a heart attack and some friend kind stranger with his pain <laughs> gave us a punchline and yeah and so, so you know i feel like similarly there's that spirit of of comedy and humor in in almost anything you know like if people are upset like why are they upset like you want to understand the truth of the thing and see how it's absurd and i i, I get the sense that you get that and i, I really appreciate uh I, I really enjoy watching your stuff on youtube like the sense of you know like hu- the humor at a funeral i think um john please have you seen this quote he says something like um you know, we can talk about serious things like, you know, death, uh, how to educate our children, like just all these important things, but we don't have to be solemn about it. We don't have to be like austere. And he describes that, um, you know, solemnity is like, as he frames it, it's like, it's like respect for authority in a sense. You know, it's, it's, there's a reason that fascists and authoritarians don't like comedy because comedians point out the absurdity of some social order or whatever, and they, they disrupt authorities yes. comedy and seriousness are not opposites yeah exactly um, is i just spent a week with my uh, twin brother and his children um he's got a new new baby who's uh two and a half months old little little mm-hmm. boy and mm-hmm. we were playing a little game um mm-hmm. so he's just old enough to start to kind of come online and recognize that there are other people and and that he's a person and all of this stuff and that was just a little game where I'd tip him over and he'd sort of suction onto my head and then I'd bring him back and he kind of would open his mouth and kind of he, he started to recognize that it was a game and I found it so funny he'd started to roar as he approached and you know he realized that there was yeah. a you know a fierceness to what he was doing and and he was laughing and I was laughing but part of what he was laughing at was how much joy I had. And part of what I was laughing at was how much fun he was having. And I thought this is my favourite kind of comedy. It's the essence of it, yeah. Is that is when it's not just about the the structure or the surprise or the point or that it's just the joy in other people's joy. And to mm. recognize that in a in an infant, he can't even hold mm. his head up properly. To re- <laughs> yeah. like this deeply profound human thing, which is joy yes. in somebody else's joy. He knew he was making me happy, and that made him happy. It was just like, this is it. Like, this yeah. is it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it 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 reminds me of a line in my show that I'm doing at the moment, which is. The whole show is set on a train. The first quarter, I'm talking about childhood. The second bit, I'm talking about young adulthood. The third bit, I'm talking about motherhood. The fourth bit, I'm talking about death. At the end, at 50, 53 minutes, when I'm starting to wind up and I'm talking about the other people on the train and what they're doing, and I say, um, oh, the train's a metaphor for life. That is my favourite laugh of the whole show because it's such a dumb thing to say. Like, obviously the train's a metaphor for life, but the fact that just that moment with the audience is my favourite joke, that they get that I'm just saying that because that's a funny thing to say, and I think it's funny. It's not. It isn't a funny thing to say, except that I'm enjoying it it so much. Yeah, yeah. And and if they enjoy that joy in me, then I've done my job properly. That's wonderful. Oh, thank you so much. I'll have you on again. Um, it's just been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having tea with me. 
Thank you for having me. This is great. Loudy rifle, doll, loudy rifle day. On Monday morning, when she comes in, she hangs her coat on the highest pin, turns around for to view her frames, crying, "Damn you, doppers, cry up your ends!" Loudy rifle, doll, loudy rifle day. And when the boss he looks round the door, tie your ends up, doppers, he will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do. For Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lally rifle, doll, lally rifle day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away. Is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lally rifle, doll, lally rifle, day.